One thing that the Affordable Care Act does is it's bringing in data and transparency. So as time goes on and we have utilization data and other data around, the feds may have the opportunity to look at that data and then at some point down the road be able to define a uniform standard. I do think that in the long run, um, hopefully they'll be getting better health care. They'll be getting better access to the benefits that they will likely need because the one thing we all know is that we're all going to need health care of probably some major sort at some point in our lives. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California, a very hot Southern California. And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is off today. But before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com. Today, we'll be covering the implementation of essential health benefits, a section of the Affordable Care Act, which requires all insurance providers to cover a set of 10 health care services. These services are ambulatory, emergency, hospitalization, maternity, newborn care, mental health and substance abuse disorder, rehabilitative and habilitative therapies and devices, laboratory, preventive and wellness and chronic disease management, and pediatric, including oral and vision care. The goal is to make all insurance coverage comprehensive under the Obamacare standard no matter what. However, it seems like the word required is being used loosely when describing these benefits. There's quite a bit of wiggle room, if you will, on what insurance companies will require within these health benefits. For example, behavioral therapy, which is common therapy for those with autism, generally falls under the description of a behavioral health treatment. But there's no description outside of behavioral health treatment listed on the healthcare.gov website. So those who need habilitative therapy are still going to have to trudge through the fine print and make sure it's included. This is because although the Obama administration has outlined the 10 required services, it's up to the states to define them and surely define them separately and individually and differently, and then decide how to implement them. Well, we've invited two guests to join us on the program today. I'd first like to welcome Dr. Shana Alex Lavaretta. She is the Director of Health Insurance Studies for the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research. As Director, Shana is involved in numerous projects within the center. Her research focuses on discontinuous health insurance, particularly among low-income children and their access to care, as well as underinsurance to those with coverage. She also focuses on the political issues surrounding health care reform at the state and federal level. Welcome to the show, Shana. Thank you. And we're going to also be speaking with David Cusano of Georgetown Center on Health Insurance Reforms. David currently works in Georgetown's State Health Reform Assistance Network to provide technical assistance to state officials on implementing the Essential Health Benefits and the Affordable Care Act. He's previously worked as in-house counsel for the insurance provider Coventry Healthcare, where he advised the company on how to implement the ACA's new requirements on their day-to-day healthcare plan operations. David can give us a unique insight from the insurance provider's perspective. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Well, this sounds like a whole lot of fun to have 50 different states interpreting uh, 10 different essential health benefits uh, that are required of all states and up to the states then to implement them once they've defined them. How is this not going to be a disaster, Shana? (laughs) Well, uh, it might be a bit of variation, but hopefully not a disaster. 
Um, some states, uh, like California, already have many benefit mandates on the books. They've been state law for quite some time that either meet or in some cases exceed um, the standards put out by the ACA. I do think that this provides a good floor um, for those states that haven't met that yet, but there's certainly going to be some work for legislators to do to try and, and meet these standards. What was the idea behind having the states define these benefits as opposed to having one federal definition that would be standard for all of us, David? Well, I think um, that's, a, that's a good question. I think historically the states have been regulating uh, their insurance markets, and as Shana pointed out, many states have um, specific mandates um, that have been passed by their legislation. So I think there was some acknowledgement by the federal government to uh, maintain some flexibility for the states to still be involved in defining you know, the, the essential benefit package. In addition, um, you know, the feds were involved in the sense that you know, states were required to pick a you know, benchmark plan that is you know, a plan that's currently offered in a particular state that encompasses the essential health benefits. So carriers are using, you know, an existing plan um, that's currently in the market that um, encompasses the, the required benefit. So there is some standardization, at least within each state, in terms of the essential health benefits that um, a carrier in a particular state um, will have to offer. Well, given that standardization and, to me, seemingly inevitability that 50 states are going to define things differently from each other, What's going to happen when one person is getting autism care in Michigan and then moves to California, Shane, and they get different definitions for autism care? Well, I think that is a big issue in medicine in general. It has to do with health insurance. It also has to do with the delivery of care and the fact that there's so little evidence-based medicine as part of our health care system. And the Affordable Care Act tried to address that by creating the Center of Effectiveness Research. It created kind of a more standardized procedure to look at whether or not certain benefits are going to be not only cost-effective, but beneficial to the patient in the most effective way. But as we've seen from, you know, the Dartmouth Atlas data, um, even in a system like Medicare, where you have this standardized federal system, you still have incredible regional variation in the delivery of care and in the cost of care. So I think that the fact that someone might move from Michigan to California and have different uh, types of care and different ways in which that care is going to be paid for is something that you know Americans have kind of lived with for a long time, but we're trying to move towards let's give everybody the best and most appropriate care possible. Hopefully with this autism therapy um, that you're, you're mentioning, that's something that the patients themselves and their families are very much you know, clamoring for because they feel that it really is the best option, the most effective option. And I think those kinds of um, public pressures can also move the conversation of, well, what's best, the best medicine? Well, the best medicine sometimes is what works best for the patient in allowing them to live their lives in a more normal way. Um, that might become the standardized care, whereas right now it's kind of considered experimental. Well, there was a brief that got issued by the George Washington University School of Public Health and Health Services. It said one in seven children need habilitative services. David, what do you suggest families do if there's no option of habilitative services in their plan? Are there administrative remedies they can pursue? Is there legal action that they need to take? How do they solve those problems? Well, I, I think um, the, the, fir the, the first starting point would be to you know, review closely um, you know, the health benefit plan that they're purchasing because you know, there is a requirement to cover habilitative services. So I think the starting point would be to reach out to either you know, a, a navigator that can provide you 
Um, the feds have you know, allocated resources to help you know individuals purchase policies. So to work with somebody who understands the policies being offered in that market, and of course, if there is uh, a policy that doesn't include, or the policies that are available through the exchange or, or off the exchange do not have the habilitative services that an individual feels uh, should be covered. I think the starting point would be to engage in a discussion with the you know the departments of insurance to really you know understand the whether the scope of coverage of habilitated services in a policy uh, meets the requirements under the federal law. Well, Shane, do you do you think that the list of ten on the essential health benefits is comprehensive enough? Are there services you think you need that should be added, or services you think should be removed? Well, I, I, I certainly would not advocate for removing any of the services that are listed there. I, I think we have a problem more of of lean insurance packages than of over abundant insurance packages. That's for sure. Um, I think the biggest thing that was left off was the adult dental piece. We do have a pediatric dental and vision included as part of the essential health benefits, but for some reason, adult dental and vision has really never gotten the same kind of uh, respect as the need for pediatric dental, and yet so much research um, lately in the past you know, five years or so has come out showing that um, dental problems lead to severe problems in adults, including heart attack, heart attack and stroke. Uh, so I, I think that that kind of care... Um, should have been included uh, from a public health perspective and was not included from the cost perspective. And I do think that that is going to be an issue. When I read through that list, I did not hear anything about prescription drugs. Is that included or not? Uh, Prescription drugs um, are included as part of the other sets of care. Um, They're not included separately. At this point, um, it's it's kind of odd to have prescription drugs uh, be pulled out as its own separate program. People do have these carve-outs and subcontractors, but in terms of its basic care covered in the benefits for your um, condition that you might have, um, it's in there. So there aren't going to be any plans that don't include prescription drugs. David, can you describe the the medical management and the cost-sharing provisions of this plan? Certainly. So I think uh, most importantly, there's a limit on, you know, the out-of-pocket maximum that uh, individuals can pay out of pocket for essential benefits. So things like deductibles, uh, co-payments, co-insurance are, are capped. I believe it's around $6,500 in total um, for an individual in the $12,000 range for a family. So, you know, I think different than sort of moving away from what is covered, there's also access to coverage. And I think what the Affordable Care Act does is recognizing that cost prohibitive care, you know, reduces access. So, the Affordable Care Act sets these limits. I will say that while you have to cover essential health benefits, insurance companies still do have the ability, the ability to um, do medical management. So, you know, there may be, um, now that there's increased coverage requirements, insurers may apply more scrutiny when applying their you know, medical managed review uh, techniques to determine whether to cover an item or not to make sure that, you know, they want to make sure that that service is med- medically necessary. So you may see uh, an increase in utilization review performed by carriers to help sort of contain the expenditures for these new benefits that are now accessible um, by consumers. Shane, let's talk about uh, catastrophic care. I mean, and some insurance policies have lifetime caps for cancer and treatment like that, and uh, other types of. And there are some individuals who will require some very substantial lifetime care. How does the Obamacare and, and the essential health benefits interplay with the, uh, these lifetime caps? 
Well, lifetime caps are, are part of what was eliminated actually back in September of 2010. Six months after the law was enacted, there were many different provisions that went into effect. And one of those was the elimination of lifetime caps kind of across the board as, as a, uh, a general category. But, um, you know, as uh, Dave was saying, that the other interesting point, though, in the medical management type of way is that what was not eliminated at the time was annual limits. Um, they were raised, and, and they're supposed to be eliminated as of 2014. But as you mentioned also, Craig, what was also not eliminated were, you know, kind of limits on particular services in some ways. So there's no more statement of, well, when you hit $2 million, you're done. Um, that's not allowed anymore. But they are allowed to do kind of more medical management and say, well, you can only have so many visits, you can only have so many treatments, you can only have so many of this that we'll reimburse for, um, and so many hospital days, you know, those kind of issues. And, and the big problem there is when people hit those limits um, then, and they need more care, what do they do after that point? Yeah, so just to follow on that point, uh, Shana, historically, uh, a carrier might cap physical therapy benefit at $5,000, and so that would be prohibited. It's an annual $5,000 limit for physical therapy. So if you have somebody who needs aggressive physical therapy, they won't bump up against that cap. But what that carrier could do is say, okay, the $5,000 cap is gone, but we're going to limit physical therapy visits to 10 visits or 20 visits. And so that today is permissible under the plan. So an individual who needed more than 10 or 20 visits, if a carrier took the approach to have that visit limit, then that individual, you know, as of today, once they hit that 10 or 20 visit limit maximum, then they would be, you know, potentially paying out of pocket to go get that continued uh, therapy. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Robert Ambrosi is off today. So, Shana, I'm looking and I kind of go back to one of the original questions I asked. It seems like you have potentially 50 sets of definitions for these essential health benefits. How do we resolve conflicts between the states' definitions? Is there, a, is there an ombudsman or a type of a, an appeal process that can be utilized? How does the internal structure of resolving these issues work out within Obamacare? Well, I don't believe that there is a structure to resolve them. And, and honestly, I don't think that many people uh, in you know, the government kind of feel that that needs to be resolved. As long as the state plans, and they all have to submit you know, what they're doing to Health and Human Services, and Health and Human Services will be reviewing these. 
But as long as they do get approved by HHS, there's actually no um, need or provision to resolve any of the differences between states. It is possible, of course, for legislators to look at what's going on in other states and say, well, I like that and let's legislate that here. Um, but there's, there is no uh, requirement that they match each other in any way. And just to, to add on to that point, um, the way, at least today, the, the enforcement framework is set up, for the most part, the states have been tasked with, with enforcing um, the Affordable Care Act. So I think all but five or six states are responsible for determining whether a carrier's health plan has the essential health benefits. So it's going to vary, as Shana indicates, it's going to vary you know, state to state in terms of what those benefits are under the framework today. And I think the feds, um, because the states have historically regulated the private health insurance market, they, they did want to, they were cognizant of that and wanted to leave that enforcement authority uh, to the states because you know, under the idea that the states are the experts within their market. I think um, as time goes on and, you know, one thing that the Affordable Care Act does is it's bringing in data and transparency. So as time goes on and we have utilization data and um, other data around, you know, rate review and the MLR and, and medical spend, the feds may have the opportunity to look at that data and then at some point down the road be able to define a uniform standard. But I think because this is the first real across-the-board national, uh, you know, healthcare bill, I think they're being very conservative in terms of defining the world of essential benefits at this point because hopefully down the road, you know, as Shana indicated, we'll have more evidence-based medicine based on some of the data that we're receiving to have a, a better understanding of what the uniform benefits for everyone should be, sort of not state by state, but, you know, across all 50 states. Let's look at what some people have called rate shock. Apparently, not all states have all 10 of these benefits, or not all people have all 10 of these minimum benefits in their, in their insurance policies, and they're going to be forced to include those and purchase them. How do people deal with that increased cost? Well, I've, you know, I've heard different people talk about that in different ways, and, and the most upset people I've heard are the brokers who have been selling leaner plans to their customers historically and are now very upset uh, that their plans are more robust. Uh, they will, their customers will be getting, you know, by definition, better insurance, but also having to pay slightly more for that because of the inclusion and uh, I, you know, I, I talk to them about the subsidies and they say, well, my customers are those that you know, aren't going to get the subsidies. Their incomes are too high. So I, I do think that is um, going to be an issue for some people. But you know, the point is, is that those people are a very small percentage of the market. Um, you know, they were trying to kind of game the system in some sense before by trying to you know, reduce their own cost of premiums. But then when they needed those benefits, maybe using those with the uncompensated care or, or having to go, you know, through other routes to, to get their care paid for. So, you know, that, remember, the individual market as it is now is only 5% of the entire, you know, insurance market of the country. So there, there is going to be some rate shock for some of those people that were kind of taking advantage of that system, the catastrophic system before, and now are not going to be able to. But I do think that in the long run, um, hopefully they'll be getting better health care. They'll be getting better access to the benefits that they will likely need because the one thing we all know is that we're all going to need health care of probably some major sort at some point in our lives, um, and, and hopefully that will even out over time. Well, there's also been some concern uh, about the some states are apparently using kind of a combination of federal management and state management. David, can you describe that to us, how that works? 
Yeah, there's some states that are running the exchanges exclusively themselves. So, for example, um, Maryland and Oregon, they have, uh, it's a state-based exchange. They're responsible for, you know, all the functionality of the, um, uh, of the exchange. On the, the state partnership exchanges, the, the states are involved with what I'll call plan management, you know, reviewing the essential health benefit policies, uh, you know, certifying uh, the carriers that will be able to offer qualified health plans those types of services. Um, but, you know, I, I would say the big, sort of the big difference between a state partnership and uh, a, a state partnership and a, you know, a state-based exchange would be, um, you know, the, the feds are, um, you know, providing, you know, a, a component of the IT support. So the um, exchange platform that folks will go into will be through, the, through, that, through that feds. They're providing sort of the IT support. But, uh, you know, the states in the state partnerships are very active in some of the states in terms of, uh, you know, ensuring that, that the carriers are filing appropriate plans and complying with the, with the various requirements to participate on the exchanges. And Shana, these uh, standards, these essential health benefits are supposed to be minimum standards. What happens if, say, for example, I would like to purchase a policy that has better benefits than the minimum? Can I do that? How do I go about doing that? And is there any issues that I need to be worried about? Well, I think absolutely people are, are going to be able to purchase something that goes above the minimum. Um, if the market supports it, it, you know, it will provide it. Uh, and there, there will be customers who want to go above the minimum. Within the exchanges, you have these four benefit tiers, you know, notwithstanding the catastrophic coverage that under 30s can purchase that actually doesn't have some of these benefits. But so everyone will be able to buy bronze, uh, silver, gold, or platinum. And they vary on actuarial value, and they all are supposed to have the essential health benefits. And of course, none of them are actually available yet, so it's hard to say this with certainty. But it looks like it's very possible that the platinum plans, um, which you can't get subsidies for, they are catering to people who are paying with their own money, are also going to be including, you know, along with the greater actuarial value on the essential health benefits, other benefits as well. You know, they will try to. Um, entice customers to be able to buy those products by you know, offering more of the bells and whistles um, that maybe not are even included with the essential health benefits. So will I be, will I be uh, and I just haven't paid close enough attention to this, but when Obamacare fully kicks in, am I going to be on an Obamacare policy? Am I still going to be on my Blue Cross Blue Shield policy? Yeah, there is no such thing as an Obamacare policy, actually. Um, it, it's all, you know, through private companies, um, people will be able to purchase on the exchanges the private insurance. Um, there will be some kind of public options available, but it's very hard for those to get started. So right now, those co-op plans are, are you know, not really starting up um, for 2014. They might be available in later years. Then there's also uh, the federal coverage that people can buy into, but again, that hasn't really been uh, decided upon about how that's going to be available. So really, it's going to be these private plans. Um, people will be buying a Blue Shield plan through the exchange of their state um, with possibly um, the help of federal subsidies to do it. But it is entirely uh, a private insurance unless you get put into your state's Medicaid program, um, which is also expanding. Um, or possibly their basic health plan if the state decides to go for that option. Those would be state-provided coverage. But other than that, um, and, and those would be under Medicaid, they still would not be called an Obamacare plan. There, there really is no such thing. It seems like there is. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem because people talk about it, but it actually does not exist. <laughs> That's good to know. 
Well, David, the according to uh, the White House rule in a press release that was issued at the White House, the final rule prohibits insurers from discriminating based on an individual's age, expected length of life, present or predicted disability, the degree of medical dependency, the quality of life, or other health conditions. Call me silly, but it seems to me that that's the whole basis for the actuarial understanding of insurance companies about how much they're supposed to charge in premiums. How are they supposed to be able to charge premiums now? Well, I think there's a, right. So I think there's a distinction between you know charging premiums in terms of calculating the overall risk of your population, so versus not covering those folks who are incredibly sick. So uh, health insurance carriers will have to offer coverage to everyone. That's going to be you know folks that are we're called the young invincibles that are you know 18 to to, to 30 and are, are healthy, and then there's going to be folks that have more serious illnesses such as cancer and. What the Affordable Care Act says to insurance companies is that, you know, you can't say that uh, deny coverage because an individual has a, a serious medical condition such as cancer and so their insurance costs are, are going to be high. You have to include those individuals when you're offering coverage, but they don't say that you can't price for it. Your, premi- your premiums are still going to be calculated based on the, the, the new rating requirements, which is going to take into consideration the overall experience of uh, the members that you're covering. So. You know, premiums may be a little bit higher across the entire population that you're covering based on the number of sick individuals you have, but the sick individuals versus the healthy individuals aren't going to be paying more. So it it's really smooths out um, the risk across the carrier's population. So you're not discriminating between individuals that you're covering, and, and um, so that's, that's how that provision is meant to work. Yes, it is, but no, it's not. <laughs> Well, we just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final and closing thoughts. And, and Shane, I, as you do that, one of the things that I'd appreciate you addressing for our listeners is what steps they need to take and they need to be aware of in order to understand fully Obamacare and how this is going to, beyond listening to this program, of course. But if I have more questions, what can people do? Where do they go? Well, I think the the best thing that people can do is if you're employed and you already have job-based coverage, talk to your human resources department to find out whether there will be any changes because it's likely that there will not be, um, although there may be. So that's something to check into. Also, everybody should look into um, the marketplace or the exchange in their state. Each state is going to have its own um, setup in terms of a, uh, whether or not they have their own state-based marketplace, because only about half the states do, honestly. Um, but check, and if your state doesn't have its own state-based marketplace, in California, it's called Covered California, coveredca.com, or the federal government will be setting up the marketplace for your state. So even if your own state doesn't do one on their own, then you can go to the federal marketplace and look into uh, those national plans that are going to be offered through that and see whether or not that might be a better deal. That's where the essential health benefits are really going to be available. Um, And it's possible that you might be able to get better coverage than you have now. It's also possible that you might be able to get coverage if you're currently uninsured. And those would be starting to enroll this October. um, And then the, the plans would start January 1st. So I, I think that's really the best thing for people to do is, is to call that. Um, also, I know that legislators are really acting as a good resource for their constituents. We actually just did a briefing for legislative staff of California 
on uh, how to field these calls um, that they're absolutely sure to get from their constituents saying, just where do I go to find out information? So that, that would be a good place to check also is with your local legislator who can steer you towards these resources in your own state. Right. And thank you. Well, David, let's, let's turn to you, David. Let's get your final thoughts and maybe you can address also one of the things that we didn't talk during the program is uh, what happens with penalties. Uh, yeah, so the, um, and the individual mandate for individuals that uh, don't have insurance, they will end up paying a penalty that's um, a percentage of what they would have otherwise paid for their coverage. So that's one thing for individuals to be thinking about when you know, making a decision to either purchase or not purchase coverage is the fact that there will be an out-of-pocket cost if um, the decision is made to, not, to not, purchase, not purchase coverage. And then my only other closing thought would be that we spent a lot of time talking about the differences between you know, the, the various states, but I, I would say that the Affordable Care Act is, from my perspective, is an attempt to create sort of the rules of the road for health insurance carriers you know, across the 50 states using um, enforcement mechanisms that, that have been used uh, historically on, on the state level. So you know, hopefully what we'll see as the uh, exchanges are rolled out um, and enrollment begins October 1st is you know, a, market set, a market that looks similar to what we had you know, prior to Obamacare, but just more uniform you know, across the, the 50 states because a lot of the enforcement mechanisms uh, that the states have currently used or previously used have been adopted by, by the Affordable Care Act. And where do people actually find these exchanges? Do you find them online, and where do you find them? Um, the, well, there's the um, healthcare.gov would be a good place to start, which is a federal website, which should be able to direct you to the um, federal exchange. As Shana indicated, each state may, or about half the states have their own state-based exchange. So um, you, I would you know, start uh, at the state insurance website and, you know, as a starting point. But I believe that healthcare.gov will link to the, to the, um, to the state-based exchanges. So that would be, I believe, the best starting point to find, to find that. Great. Thank you. And David, if our listeners want to reach out to you, how would they get a hold of you? Oh, yeah, they can reach me um, by phone at 202-687-4940 or by email at dc1025 at georgetown.edu. Great. And Shana, how can our listeners reach out to you? Well, I'm on the other coast, so just remember Los Angeles Pacific Time um, at UCLA. So it's Shana, S-H-A-N-A, at UCLA.edu or 310-794-2261. Great. And thank you both very much for your time and on today's program. And uh, I think we're just going to skip over the uh 30 seconds that uh, Bob does since he's not here, and I'll go on with mine. I think that it's been a very interesting learning process for me because I essentially know nothing about uh, Obama healthcare, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have participated in the program and learned these things. Um, yeah, healthcare.gov is the site to go to and get there before October 1st. That's only my thought. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Bob Ambrosi is off today. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.